Tonight I'm beginning the fifth basic Bible course. And I think by the time we reach the end of the course, you're going to realize that this is one of the most important, most fundamental, most vital, and I think most mature series that we could possibly have. Because I'm going to speak in this series on the subject of the character of God, or I suppose you could subtitle it, God, who is he? And you would think that being such a fundamental subject, it would be a subject that lots and lots and lots of people would be speaking about all the time. Yet I have to tell you that something very strange has happened in Christianity in our present day. And that is that, in fact, people today rather tend to ignore the whole subject of the character of God. You might find the odd talk given about the character of God, but generally today ministers are much more interested in all sorts of other things. They're all speaking on healing, on deliverance, as I do myself, incidentally, on the place of the church, the place of the Jews, and all sorts of other things, church life, fellowship life, and so on and so on. And yet very rarely do you hear ministry today in detail about the God that we purport to know and we purport to serve. And I find today that this is one of the most disturbing things in the church generally. For it seems as if the church today is preaching a message which is slightly off-center. And you often meet Christians, all the time in fact, who think that the main purpose of their faith is that they should get to heaven. Or the main purpose of their faith is that they should have a good life. Or the main purpose of their faith is that they should be blessed or their family should be blessed, or this person blessed, or they should be healed, or whatever it is. And you suddenly find, if you meet enough of these Christians, that the message of the gospel, as far as it goes out, and the message of Christianity, seems to have become extremely man-centered in these days. It's one of the most disturbing things, I think, has happened in the church. And the funny thing is that God is therefore pushed away from the center. May I say to you tonight, and it's something I'll be repeating time and time again through this course, that the main purpose of your faith is that you should know God. It seems so down to earth, so basic, and yet how many people have you actually heard say that? That you should know him and that you should actually glorify him. That's the main purpose of what our faith is all about. Now, of course, it is true that you will go to heaven. It is perfectly true, of course, that you will be blessed. It is true that you may be healed. But I would say all of those are secondary to the main pivotal point of our faith, which is this. Our faith is there that we might know God, because God wants us to know him. And I believe until we as a fellowship, until the church generally comes back to this pivotal point, we're, we're not going to see the quality of Christianity that was see in, seen, say, last century. Can I just show you how the Bible cuts through all the materialism and man-centeredness of the present-day Christianity and goes right to the heart of the matter? And there are many scriptures I could, I could choose, but I want to begin in Jeremiah and chapter 9. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23, we have one of the highest statements found anywhere in Scripture. And if this is kept in mind, we will find that the materialism that is creeping into the church will be kept from our door. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23 and 24, this is what it says. 
Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, even though that wisdom may have come from God. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might, even though the mighty deeds that he does may be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't glory in those things. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, even though that prosperity may have come through your devotion to God. Don't glory in that at all. But, verse 24, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. And do you see, as soon as you read that, you know we're off base, don't you? Because today, often you go to meetings and all you hear is the is people extolling a certain point of view, a certain doctrine, a certain way that they were blessed, and I was blessed here, and God blessed me here, and all the rest, instead of actually spending our time glorying this, glorying in this marvelous fact that we first of all understand and then we know God. And the trouble with us today is we've, been, we've become content with knowing what God does knowing what his plans are for the future, instead of realizing we've got to know him. You'll notice, by the way, tonight, we are glorying, aren't we, in the results of the men who work down in the electricity generating department. I mean, we have lights illuminating us tonight. We have a tape recorder recording this, hopefully, anyway. You might at home uh, sit by your radiogram, or you might uh, cook on an electric stove. Now, you know what the results of their labours are, but that's not the same thing at all as knowing the men who work down there. You might know that one of them's called Alf Price. You might know that. But that, still, you don't know who that person is. You don't know how he thinks. You don't know how he feels. You don't know how sensitive he is in certain issues. And yet Christians today think because they know his acts that thereby they know him. It's not true. And I would say that this is the malaise that has taken over the church of Jesus Christ today. Fundamentally, God wants us to know him and he has made that the central purpose of our faith, that we should know him. Eternal life is this, that we know God. That's a wonderful thing. We've got to know him. And here it says, to understand him as well. What a privilege this is. God, who is infinite, who is beyond our understanding, we can understand him. God is a God who actually wants to be known by us. That's why in the Old Testament you'll find that God constantly appeared. He constantly did things so that people could see. He constantly spoke to people, sometimes with an audible voice that everyone could hear. And he wrote his law with his own finger in the stone so that everyone knew he was real. And all the appearances in the temple, right, in the tabernacle, wherever God appeared, they're all there because he wanted people to know who he was and to know him. In the New Testament, it's even more wonderful. For God has done two wonderful things that we should know him. First of all, he sent his son into this world. I love that little verse that's found in Colossians 1.15 that just says this, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. What a mysterious thing that is. God is invisible. That means he has no image. But Jesus is his image, even though he is invisible. And Jesus said that any man that's seen me has seen the Father. Why did God do that? Why is it that Jesus came in the flesh? It's because Father wanted 
us to know him. It's put in a beautiful way. Can we just turn in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians and chapter 4, verse 6. And this is so beautiful. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. Hebrews 1.1 says a similar thing to this. But in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, look what it says. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You see that? Isn't that wonderful? We look at Jesus and in his face we see the glory of God. So by knowing Christ, we know the Father. Now that's the first thing that he's done that proves that he wants us to know him. The second thing he's done, and this is wonderful, he's given us of his own spirit. The Holy Spirit abides in everyone who is a born-again Christian, and that Holy Spirit is there that you might know God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says this, What knoweth the things, what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? So the things of God knoweth no man, save the Spirit of God. And God has given us the Holy Spirit that we might know God personally. How many Christians do you know who actually understand God, have an understanding of what he's like and what he does? I don't know too many, I have to say to you. And it's such a shame, isn't it, that that is the case. In fact, I would say this, that even among born-again people, we still have the situation that Paul found in Athens, where he found the temple devoted to the unknown God. Oh, they know they're saved. They know what God is going to do, but they don't really know him. And so the altar in their lives is a totally unknown God. And do you know something? That an unknown God is a very frightening spectacle indeed. An unknown God is unknown as far as the people are concerned. They don't know what he's thinking. They don't know what he's feeling. They don't know what... Uh, his attitude towards them is or towards their circumstances. If problems arise, they don't know how to react because they don't know how God's reacting. And so you see, people who have an altar to an unknown God in their lives will always be unstable and always be emotional Christians. And there are plenty of them around. And very often these Christians like to talk about the things that God's doing and this that is available. But yet you see in their lives an instability that should never be there. It's important for us to realize, once we know who God is, how he thinks, how he functions, what his attitude is, the one result in our lives is total peace. Praise God. You know, when I was a young Christian, I had peace in my life because I claimed the promises of God. And I would recommend that to all young Christians. If you're a young Christian here tonight, and you really want to know what peace and stability is, you start noting down the promises found in the Word of God, and start claiming them. Claim them so often that you know them inside your heart. But then I found God started taking me deeper. And I realized this, that the Word of God was based upon His character. And I also realized that as I got to know Him, so His Word would make sense, but also, if I couldn't think of a promise, I'd know what, how he was reacting anyway. And so I find now that the stability and peace that I have, and generally I dwell in a position of complete stability and peace in my own personal life, generally speaking, is based upon the fact that I know who God is. I know him personally. I know how he's going to react. When something happens to me, I know what God's thinking about that thing. And some people might think that's arrogant. 
But do you see, it's quite clear from the Bible, God wants us to know him like that. Glory in this that you understand me, he says. A real friend understands his friend, doesn't he? And Abraham was called the friend of God. Fancy that, having God as your friend, because you understand him. God, I know you're burdened about this at this moment, and I'm sharing that burden. God, thank you that this morning I've woken up feeling totally unlovable, but I know that you love me. I know that you do, because I know who you are. You see, I know what you're like. Otherwise, this instability occurs. One day you're feeling up, and oh, it's wonderful. God is a God of blessing. Next day, you wake up, you feel like nothing on earth, and all of a sudden you think, oh, God, God, you still there? You know, really, what is this going on? God, don't you like me today? You've got to know who he is if you're going to come into some stability, and it's important, really, to see that. You'll remember, don't you, what the promise of God is. In Daniel 11.32, what does it say? Those that do know their God, those that do know their God, shall be strong. That means they will have poise, they will have stability, right? They will have happiness and joy. Those that do know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. The exploits don't come before knowing your God. And we've got to see that God does not want stable, unstable, emotional believers around. He wants people who know their God and who are so grounded in him that nothing at all can move them. And I found time and time again, you know, that I've had to come back to this wonderful knowledge of my God. I've had to come back to it time and time again. And I've also found that Satan would try and take me away from knowing my God. I find sometimes if I'm studying the Bible that God will just tap me on the shoulder and say, excuse me, can I have a little word, you know, in, in your researches? And I suddenly realized that as I'd been reading the Bible, I'd been getting out of it the plan of redemption or prophecy or something. And God says to me, but have you remembered who wrote it? And suddenly I have to see that I've got to start thinking again of the grandeur of the divine author of this book. Because after all, the Bible is quite clear. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Without that, there is no wisdom at all. We've got people around, you know, and they talk the most utter rubbish, worldly, utter rubbish in the name of Christ. And you know as you're speaking to them, there's no fear of God in their hearts. And, that, and the Bible says that's foolishness, no matter how you cut it. Because unless there is the fear of the Lord at the beginning of everything, then you have no wisdom at all. And so we've got to get back to this knowledge of God. And the whole of this course, 14 talks, are going to tell us who our God is, and it should bring stability into our lives. In fact, the prayer that we must begin every session with is found in Colossians 1 and verse 10. And I expect some of you are wondering why I didn't begin with prayer. Well, I'm about to. Right, Colossians 1 and verse 9 and verse 10, where Paul, the author of the book of Colossians, actually prays a prayer himself. Verse 9 and verse 10. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with all the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Then it goes on talking about being strengthened in the inner man. But I believe our prayer has got to be, Lord, increase me in the knowledge of the holy. Can we just pray together and ask God 
to do that in our hearts. Father, I believe, Lord, that in these days there is a feeling of sadness in your heart about much of what is spoken in your name. Father, I do thank you that you long to bless your children. You long to see us moving as king's kids. Father, you long to see us moving in the riches that you've poured out upon us. But Father, do forgive us that sometimes, Lord, when once we've received these things, we don't come back to get to know you. Forgive us, Father, that there's so little time just spent sitting in your company, just getting to know you. We're so busy doing things, doing this and preparing that, and seeing this person, instead of sitting down and getting to know you. Father, I would ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, that the result of this Bible study series should be people who know their God, who will have stability and healing through knowing their God. And, Father, that these same people might be so stable in their lives that they should do exploits for you. Therefore, Father, I pray that you will really bless us tonight and right through the series, that indeed we should learn wonderful things and all the time know that it is the knowledge of the holy which makes us truly wise. In Jesus' name I would ask it, Lord. Amen. All right, with that introduction, I have to tell you that the subject for tonight, and I'm beginning with first things first, is, does God exist? And I suppose if I was being really biblical, I wouldn't bother to actually deal with this particular subject. Because you know, once you ask this question, does God exist, you'll find very little help from the Bible. The Bible, amazing book that it is, never asks this question, does God exist? The Bible takes it as absolutely axiomatic that he exists. Of course he exists. That's what the Bible actually says. How does the Bible begin? Not with, uh, now the first thing is we've got to find out whether God exists or not. It doesn't do that. The very first verse of the Bible says this, in the beginning, God. And there's the assumption. And he doesn't come back to the whole question again. And right through scripture you find this, of course God exists. Totally axiomatic. A lovely statement of it by, well, that came through Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, is found in Psalm 90, which he also wrote. And have you ever noticed this uh, statement of the fact of God's existence? In Psalm 90, and verse 2, I love this verse very much. <clears throat> and you'll see how unhelpful the Bible is on this topic. In Psalm 90, verse 2, please don't quote me out of context, will you, when I say that? Look what it says. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Before all these things were done, and before all that happened, and all the rest, you are God. That's the first statement. And so do you see, there's no attempt to justify God's existence whatsoever. And more than that, the Bible does, is, is not only unhelpful here, it's scathing against those who would dare say that there isn't a God. It doesn't say, oh, the poor things, they're slightly ignorant on this and perhaps need a bit more information. No, sir. What saith the Bible? The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Say there's no God. Oh, the Bible says you're an idiot. Must be out of your mind to think that. And it leaves it there. And then it goes on, so it just shows how corrupt you are. 
to suggest that that is the type of thing. And you'll find this emphasis constantly in the Bible right the way through. Many people have trouble with Romans chapter 1. And they have trouble with it because they don't know, you know, that men basically, deep down inside, know that God exists. At least that's what the Bible actually declares. So let's go to Romans chapter 1. We're getting through the scriptures first because we have to abandon the Bible after this if we're going to ask this question. Romans chapter 1. And can I just read verse 18 down to verse 22? Verse 18 is a statement that all people on the face of this earth are going to be judged. And some people say, oh, but how unfair. Some people didn't know. But this says, no, no, everyone knows, actually, even though they may suppress it deep inside of them. I'm going to do a tape one day called, What About the Hot and Tot? And in that tape, I'm going to ask this question, what about those tribes who've never heard the message? And what you'll hear from me is this, that any person who wants to know will hear the message. Even if God has to go down and preach it himself, that person will hear. And as a result, no one, therefore, is going to be absented from the judgment. No person's going to stand before God and say, this is a revelation to me. I didn't know you existed, you know. Look what it says, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It's talking about unbelievers. They know, really, that God exists and that God has certain standards, but they won't. No, no, they're not going to listen to it. They won't have anything to do with it. They spend all their time suppressing it. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, talking about unbelievers, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was, heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And if ever that verse was true, it's true in our day. People walking along as proud as peacocks, thinking that they're so wise, and God looks down from his heaven and says, how foolish can you get? This is why the Bible also says it is appointed unto men once to die, but then comes the judgment. And all will one day meet that God that they've tried to pretend they don't know. I was so relieved when I read this in Romans because, you know, as an atheist, and I, I flirted with atheism for a little time, I often wondered why it was I kept asking God to forgive me if I'd been bad. I couldn't understand it. It was against my religion to do it, yet I always did it. And I remember, I can think now of instances where I had committed gross sin, you know, and I didn't believe in sin. I didn't believe that there was a God, and I'd actually say, God, forgive me for doing this. And here it is, and it explains everything in my experience, that deep inside my heart I really knew there was a God, even though I'd suppressed it all this time, and that I had to fight to keep it down. And when sin came along, suddenly God came up. This is why even atheists, when they're in trouble, say, God, help me. Suddenly, out it comes. Pastor Wernbrand said something very interesting. He was traveling in a train through Romania, and uh, he traveled in a carriage where there were five party officials and himself. And halfway along, someone asked him, what do you do for a living? He said, I am a preacher of the gospel, you know? And he said, I am a Christian. And he said, what religion do you belong to? And they said, oh, we're atheists. 
They were very proud of it. And he looked down to the floor and he said, why then do you all pray? Why do you pray if you're atheists? Now, what an amazing statement. And do you know they all shuffled in their seats? Because they knew it was true. One of them said, well, I don't pray. But it was after he'd shuffled with embarrassment. And Pastor Vermeran knew for a while he prayed all right. And that's what this is actually saying, you see, that men actually have a knowledge of God deep down inside of them, even though after many years it's so suppressed that they think it's not there. But the truth about God is known unto all men. And people, certainly non-Christians, would find this hard to accept. But when you become a Christian, isn't it interesting, you look back at your former life of unbelief, and you've suddenly realized you know truth was in there all the time. How many of you here would actually look back on your former life and say that's true? Are there people here? Isn't it staggering when you think of it? All right, so there we have to leave the Bible. Because, and even though this is a Bible study, I think I've got one more verse only to share. And so let's have a look at the situation that we find in front of us. If you speak to people out in the street, you'll find they come in one of three categories. First of all, you have a category of people who believe in God. Now, I don't mean by that they're Christians or born again, but some people think, oh, well, there must be somewhere out, someone out there somewhere. Right? That's the type of attitude. And these people basically believe in God. Einstein was one of these. Einstein, after all his research, said, I have come to the conclusion there must be a God, although I think he's unknowable. Isn't that tragic? You know, he's unknowable. But nevertheless, he believed in God. So that's the first group of people. The second group of people that you have are atheists. And, of course, atheist means no God. And these are people who actually declare that, no, no, I do not believe there is God, a God at all. Right? I've looked at the evidence, I can see no evidence, and I say no to the whole concept of God. And the third group of people, and this is a general term, call themselves agnostics. And an agnostic is someone who says that they don't think there's enough evidence to decide whether there's a God or not. And so they suspend their judgment. I love the word agnostic, actually, because it literally means without knowledge or ignorant. Yeah. And um, sometimes I pick up hitchhikers as I'm traveling along, you know, and they get in. And uh, I like them to sit on the back seat, you know, because I have child locks. They can't get out that way. <laughs> and, and sometimes they've made a dreadful mistake because I pick them up in Newcastle upon Tyne and they want to go to London and I'm going to London. Well, that's a six-hour journey or whatever it is. And we're together. And at first we talk about all things under the sun. And sooner or later, of course, I say, well, my job is I'm a Bible teacher. End of conversation as far as they're concerned. <laughs> Wish they'd never asked and all the rest. And, uh, you know, complete... Uh, icicle forms in the car, they're really not very interested. It's rather like saying you're a microbiologist, you know. And it's a complete conversation stopper. Uh, and if you say, oh, how very interesting, they might say to you, oh, really? You're, you're interested that I'm a microbiologist. Which part of microbiology do you find the most interesting? And if you ask that of a Bible teacher, you'll get an answer. But of course, I often say to them, well, I'm a Bible teacher. Do you have any faith at all? And the usual answer I, I get is, no, I'm an agnostic. Nice and safe. They think they're playing safe, right? Hitting the ball low, and they're, they're in. Super. The trouble is, I say, well, I always say to them this, how refreshing to meet someone as honest as you. <laughs> and they say, really? What do you mean? And I say, well, you know agnostic means ignorant. <laughs> and 
And so I say to them, uh, how, how wonderful that you've joined this car, and here I am, I know, and you don't know. And then I'm able to preach the gospel. Of course, of course I am sensitive to them, especially when they're trying to get out the window. But uh, I do try and keep it fairly low-key. Right, of these three categories that we've got, believers, atheists, and agnostics, we've got to understand that two of them are faiths. Now, agnostics, act, uh, sorry, atheists act as if theirs isn't a faith, but theirs is a faith. Because, you see, there is no such thing as an absolute proof of God. We'll be seeing that later on. And any person that believes that God exists, even though there isn't an absolute proof of God, he's applying faith to that. But so is the atheist. Because the atheist is saying, well, I believe that God doesn't exist. And I love the conversation that David Watson had uh, with Marganita Lasky on the radio. You know, Marganita started attacking him immediately for his faith in the most loving way. She's a very lovely woman. And he immediately said, hold on, Marganita, he said, you've got as much faith as I've got. She said, what do you mean? He said, well, to believe that God doesn't exist it needs as much faith as to believe that he does exist. And by the way, when I was an atheist, I used to think it was very unfair. Because you see, if people denied my belief, when they died, they were obliterated like I felt I was obliterated. But if I denied their belief and they were right, I'd end up in hell. I used to think that was terribly unfair. But you see, both of those two are faiths, and we've got to understand that they are. Now, what I want to do, and it was hard for me to choose the direction of how I should go about this, because we have a limited time. What I want to do is actually have a look at some statements made by uh, one leading atheist who lived last century, a man called Sigmund Freud. And Freud is recognized as the father of uh, psychoanalysis, you know. And he was a leading atheist, and also a Jew. And this man knew full well that the Bible declares that God created man. And so in a very clever book that he wrote, he actually said, far from believing that God created man, I believe that man created God. Isn't that a clever statement? That God doesn't really exist, but man's invented him, you see. And in one of his books, I've actually written out uh, a quotation from one of his books. This is why, he says, man created God. It says here, man desperately needs security, he says. And because he has such deep-seated fears, and because he lives in a threatening world in which he has very little control over his circumstances, he invented God to get him out when he needed something, rather like having your bank manager in your cupboard, do you know? <laughs> and you would have God in your cupboard instead. And so, because you found life pretty tough, you would have God there and always call upon him when you needed him. And when I flirted with uh, atheism, I used to say this all the time. And what I've done here, I've written down the three facts that he says cause man to invent God. God doesn't exist, of course. Man just thinks he does. First of all, he says this, that man fears the unpredictability and the impersonal nature of the world. And because it's unpredictable, he finds that he's always overtaken by acts of nature. For example, floods, volcanoes suddenly erupting, disease hitting, famine hitting, and all these things. And man feels, well, what can I do to control them? I can't control them. So he invented God above these things so that at least he could call on God and pretend that God could control them, you see? So it gave him a little bit of security. 
in the midst of this unpredictable world. So that's the first reason that he invented God. The second reason, and I'm sure we can all identify with this, is that man fears his fellow, his fellow man. By that he meant this, that generally speaking, most of us feel we have a pretty raw deal from the people around us. They don't understand me. Give me a hard time, they do. And so he invented a divine umpire that he could call upon to sort out the differences. And generally speaking, that God, said Freud, was always on his side, and he'd come and vindicate. He'd come and deal with the person who was against them. He could call on his God, and his God would deliver him from the evildoer that was going against him. So he invented God, and that was very nice. And the third one, man fears death. Or as Freud put it, he fears obscurity, you know, or, or, or obliteration. He can't stand the thought that when he dies, he is actually going to be obliterated and no longer exists. And so he's invented a God who, at the point of death, will take him to the happy hunting ground, right, a happy place where he'll live forever and ever and still exist. And so Freud said, for these reasons, man invented God. And I used to hawk these reasons everywhere I went. Right? Whenever I met uh, a so-called uh, believer, I would always say, it's pie in the sky when you die. That's why you're believing it, you see? At first sight, it looks plausible, doesn't it? But you know, if you think about these things, not only are they totally unsupportable, with the facts that we know, they're totally wrong. Now, God led me to study geography. And one of the uh, things that I did in geography was anthropology. That is a study of man and his environment and his religion. And I had to actually study certain primitive tribes and the gods that they served. And do you know what I found? That the gods that people worshipped were not the nice benefactor that he apparently invented. That most of the gods, by far the majority of the gods that were worshipped by people around these, these worlds around the world were ruthless gods. They were gods who put extra demands upon the people. Very strange. For example, do you know this, that most religions around the world impose a moral code that the people can't live up to? Isn't that staggering? You see, if I invented a god, I'd invent a god who said, oh, by the way, um, I don't mind that sin. No, you just carry on. Of course I don't mind your doing that. Or a God who would say, oh, everything's going to be all right in the end. I don't mind, honestly, just carry on the way you're going. Right? I just love you, I'm going to get you through no matter what you do. That would be the God I would invent, but that isn't the type of God you've got. You look at every primitive society around this world, they've always got a God who is imposing something upon the people and the people can't live up to it. By the way, our own God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Hands up here if you've kept it. Isn't that amazing? But that's not true of our God. It's true of every God that is worshipped around this earth. That one fact, you know, has led many atheists to become believers in God when they see that. And worse than that, if the people then don't live up to that moral code, their God then judges them by sending floods and volcanoes erupting, and famine, and disease, and disaster upon them. So not only have they got the world actually giving them famine, disease, disaster, they've got their God doing it as well. Isn't that strange? That's not what Freud said. It's quite the opposite. Very strange. And so these ruthless gods come along. Now, secondly, 
not only now does man have to fear his fellow man, he's now got a God that he's got to fear. And especially these ruthless, grabbing gods. And some of these people have hardly got enough food to sustain life, and their God comes along and says, by the way, you've got to give me half of that. And they have to give up half their food. They have to give up their cattle and their sheep in sacrifice to these gods. And even sometimes their own children have to be sacrificed to appease their God. Far from making their lot better, these gods make their lot worse. Funny, isn't it, that Freud should think the opposite of all of this. Very strange. And then the last one, man fears death. And so he's invented God, said Freud, to take him to heaven. It's not true. Most men, even though they have gods that they serve, still fear death. And why? Because they've got to go and live with this awful God who's kept them in fear all their lives. <laughs> and more than that, very often these gods say, you've got to suffer for all eternity. <laughs> I mean, where's the hope in all of that? Do you see? So you get this staggering fact that not only is Freud incorrect, he couldn't be more wrong. These gods are not the great benefactors and the super deliverers that Freud said they'd be. Far, far from it. And when you look at the world's situation and look at anthropology, Freud is wrong. It's not true that man invented God. In fact, the opposite is true. That the truth is that man, quite honestly, would rather that God didn't exist. Most societies around this world would give anything to be able to dump their God in the sea. Really would. The trouble is the reality of God is so strong they can't get away from it. And men don't spend hours inventing gods, they spend hours trying to eliminate him. Hour upon hour upon hour spent devising philosophies that remove God, you know, from existing. What a strange thing it is. And this is fundamentally wrong thinking, totally unsupportable, you see. Can I just say, by the way, so great is the reality of God that people reach out to God, and of course, who is it that's provided these gods? It's the devil that's done it. And very often the gods that they worship, these people, are de demonic forces, that's all, intent upon destroying these people. Fallen man would do anything to eliminate God, and that's the truth of the matter. You see it in the Bible, if I can just bring in the Bible here for a bit. You see it in Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve fell, what's the thing that they did? They hid from God. As they were hiding, what do you think was in their mind? I bet they were wishing God didn't exist. Why does he exist and come along and create this type of problem? I don't want to meet him again. And that's what it's all about. Fallen man wants to eliminate God. And most people, even though they believe in God, spend most of their lives pretending he doesn't exist. Do you see? And that, now we come to the other verse of Scripture that I'm going to use, is found in Romans 1 verse 28. This is what it says. Right? Romans 1. And verse 28. And even it says, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. At a certain point they chose they, to deny God. They didn't want him interfering in their lives. So God says, very well, if that's the foolishness you're going into, you can go into that foolishness. And that is the fact of the matter. Fallen man does not invent God. Fallen man tries to eliminate him all the time. Yet the staggering thing is, despite the attraction of atheism, most people can't accept it. Because the reality of God is too great within their own being. What a staggering thing it is. You see? All right, having said that, now I want to say, 
Well, is there any evidence then that shows us that there might, in fact, be a God? And I want to repeat what I said a little earlier. There is no absolute proof either way. So if you've come tonight expecting absolute proof, you are disappointed. You'll always be disappointed. There is no absolute proof either way. All that we can do is look at the evidence in front of us, and I suggest to you that the evidence shows that God is a much more likely proposition than there being no God at all. That's what we've got to do, you see. In fact, I would say this, that a Christian, a believer, generally believes in one miracle, and one miracle only. A believer believes that God exists. And once you've got that miracle established, everything else makes sense. An atheist denies that God exists, and he needs a miracle to explain everything else. That's simply true, when you think of it. And I would say, therefore, to you that to be an atheist takes more faith than to be a believer. Much more faith, actually, as I used to know in my own life. So what I want to do is to have a look at some of the so-called proofs of God. I don't like that phrase. And there are many more than the ones that I've listed here. But, in fact, uh, these are the ones that, for me, I found the most convincing evidence. And I've given them the, the names by which they're generally known. The first is the so-called cosmological proof of God. Cosmological proof of God. And basically, this is the argument that goes from cause and effect. Cause and effect. And what it says is this. Well, we know that the universe exists, and we know that matter is real. The question is, where did it come from? Because, you see, either you have to exist that matter has always existed, forever and forever and forever, it was always there, which I think most of us, if we were sitting on Bogner Beach at night looking at the stars, would find absolutely inconceivable. Either you have to believe it's always been forever and forever and forever and forever, or you have to believe that matter had a beginning and that that beginning has to be explained. Now, that's what the cosmological proof actually says. And by the way, you'll find people today who will try and answer this. I mean, non-Christians who will try and answer this particular thing. And what they say is, ah, oh, yes, matter had to come from somewhere. And it began with the Big Bang. That's what they say. I taught it myself in school, you know. And what you say is, well, the whole universe began because all the universe is rushing out. So it's obvious it was at one time altogether. And you have this globe of matter and suddenly it expanded. Of course, the problem is still there. Because the problem then is, ah, yeah, but where did that globe of matter come from? And that's your problem. And what you mustn't do is be fobbed off in this. Some people, by the way, some non-Christians, are very honest about this. In fact, I've um, cut out a little cutting from the Daily Telegraph, which advertised a book called God and the Big Bang. And this man doesn't believe in God, but he does believe in the Big Bang. And look at this amazing statement which is quoted from him. He says this, Astronomical evidence shows that space, time, and matter came violently into existence in the Big Bang about 15,000 million years ago. To ask what happened before that is meaningless. <laughs> in other words, it happened so long ago, why are you thinking about it? And so I would say to you, don't be fobbed off. It was put over very wonderfully by a man called Wollaston, who said, imagine you came to a certain place, Bogner Regis, and out of the sky there was a chain hanging down, you know, suspended above the earth. 
And there it was with all the links. And he says this, wouldn't you sooner or later ask, I wonder what's keeping that up? It's just stationary, hanging out of the sky. And then you meet a clever know-all who comes along and says, well, I've had a look through my telescope. And I've actually counted up 1,000 links. And do you know what's holding it up? It's the 1,000th and one, one link up there. Oh, that's wonderful. You mean it's all hanging on that one link all the way out there? Yes. Oh, that's marvellous. Trouble is, sooner or later you think, hold on, but what's keeping that up? <laughs> and what you can't do is keep, you know, just going up and taking it further and further and further back. Now, that's what they do. Well, it's so long ago, don't think about it. But we've got to think about it. Because I'm real, you know. Now, the matter that surrounds us had to come from somewhere. Where did it come from? We don't know where it came from. Unless you go to the Bible, of course. You don't know where it came from. But I would suggest that God is quite a good answer to that. You know, that God was the one who actually created in the beginning, you see. It's no good, certainly, putting it back and back. Because whether you have a chain of infinite length or a finite length, it still can't keep itself up. And that's quite clear. And basically what you have, and this is the uh, atheist view as opposed to the Christian view, is this. The atheist view in all of this is this equation. Here's the atheist. He says that nobody, that's no God, times nothing equals everything. <laughs> now that is, uh, being a mathematician, I like to put things down in simple form. Now, basically, that is what the atheist is saying. There was nobody there and nothing, and all of a sudden it was everything. Okay? Don't ask questions about it. It's totally meaningless. <laughs> the believer, however, would say this, that somebody, we don't know who, but somebody, times something out of nothing, which if you have a God, makes perfect sense, something out of nothing, equals everything. You see? Now, both of those uh, equations are difficult, but I would suggest that the second one is less difficult than the first one. And so what I'm saying, no absolute proof of God, but I think that it might be a little pointer that will grab you one evening as you're gazing out into space to show that perhaps there is a God after all. Now, that would be a simple explanation of the cosmological uh, proof, so-called, of God. All right, the next... Uh, one is the teleological proof of God. And again, this looks at creation. And what this says is this, that when you look at creation, and I would say the more you know about creation, the more you feel this, the more you look at creation and you see the design, you see the wonderful interrelationships that there are in nature, the more you have to come to the conclusion that this wasn't just a chance patterning, that there's actually a designer out there who put it in order. And the more I've understood this, the more amazed I've become at his sheer design. Professor Enoch put it this way. He said this, that evolution has done great evil because it has lulled people into uh, an easy acceptance that there is no designer. But he said this, that evolution is rather like saying that if you put all the pieces of a watch into a bag and shook it up for long enough, soon you'd have a perfect ticking watch. That's what he said. Now, I find that almost unbelievable. And by the way, it doesn't answer who made the pieces in the first place that would exactly fit together. But forget that for the moment. Professor Fred Hoyle, who's very well known, has given up on evolution. He's no longer an evolutionist, but he's not a believer, unfortunately. But his partner, who's an Indian doctor, whose name I cannot pronounce, 
he was asked to give evidence against evolution. And he said this, the belief in evolution is rather like believing that if a whirlwind went into a junkyard, that when it left, there'd be a jumbo jet left. <laughs> That's what you believe if you're believing in evolution. And that is not a Christian speaking, that is actually a non-Christian speaking, you see. The more you look at things, I would suggest to you, the more you see the hand of a designer. Let me say this. If I, for example, had a, a Rolls-Royce aero engine at the front here, very complex engine, and you went up to it and you saw all the bits fastened together and all the loops and the links and so on, and I said, oh, it just came up by chance. We were just sweeping up the bits and... <laughs> there it was. I mean, no one on the face of the earth today would believe it, would they? They'd say, oh, come on, you know, pull the other one. And especially if it was a minute aero engine, you know, a miniature. you say, oh, come on, someone's designed that and someone's put it together. Yet, isn't it staggering that you can take, say, an ant, which is far more complex than an aero engine? It has a brain, it has a nervous system, it has antenna that can actually analyze chemicals in the air, it has eyes, with all the cells developed, it has a complete nervous system, it has perfectly formed joints that can all feel, and yet you can say that that just came by chance. Staggering when you think of it. You think of your human body. I mean, it may not look very beautiful, but it is a piece of art. It's wonderful. So detailed that men have spent thousands of hours trying to understand how it works, and they still don't understand how the brain functions. Staggering when you think of it. You think of the eye. Oh, the intricacy of the eye. The more you study eyes, the more intricate they become. You ask Joan sometime in our fellowship. I'm going to ask her to speak on the eye one day, and you'll see just how fantastic the eye is. It's a miniature miracle. But apparently, oh, no, no creation, no designer behind it. Of course not, don't be stupid. Staggering, isn't it? I would suggest that the more you look at things around and see flowers and interrelationships between butterflies and certain plants and, and all sorts of things like that, the more you see it has to have the stamp of a creator upon it. That's what I would say. They've now, by the way, found a bacterium that lives at the bottom of the ocean. They're staggered to find it. It withstands thousands of tons per square inch pressure and lives in the temperature of 350 degrees centigrade. And apparently it just adapted. It fell in one day. Oh, well, I better adapt to this. <laughs> and they're absolutely staggered. They're abso they've only just discovered it because they never looked for living organisms down there. They assumed they couldn't be there. Now they found them. They're absolutely staggered. They can't imagine how it ever came about. How amazing. All right, so they're the two main proofs. I would just add the last one, the anthropological argument, if I can quickly throw this in. And the anthropological argument looks at man specifically. This time, not at the material side of man, but looks at the inner part of man. And it says this, that man has certain faculties, like conscience, like a knowledge of truth, a knowledge of what is right and wrong, a knowledge of what is beautiful and what is ugly. And it says, where did this come from? Some people today have actually tried to deny that all people have a knowledge, a basic understanding of right and wrong. But I would think that's nonsense. For example, if you went out into any street of any country, I would suggest, and you said to someone, is it ever right to pick up a gun and shoot dead innocent children playing in a playground, I would think everyone would say it's wrong. 
The question is asked in this point, well, how do they know it's wrong? Unless there is a higher standard by which they are judging it. And so that would say that all of these things show that God is around somewhere and that he is a moral being. Now, they're the three main arguments that I want to pick on tonight. There is a fourth in just a moment, but they're the three main ones. And can you see, by the way, from this, we can learn something of God if these actually show that there is a God. If God created all that is around us in space, we know that he must be bigger than the creation. So what do we know? First of all, we know that as space occupies a vast area, he must be bigger than that and probably omnipresent. That means everywhere. We know because of the total energy in the universe, he must be more powerful than that and probably uh, omnipotent. Because of the infinite variety around, so marvellous, by the way, they haven't been able to catalogue all the species of ant yet, let alone anything else, that surely he must have omniscience, and also we believe it's gone on for a long time, probably God is eternal as well. And that's just indicating, you know, being indicated from this. You would also see intelligence in the teleological argument, and in the anthropological argument, you would see that God must be a moral being. He must be just, he must be righteous, he must be aesthetic, that is, be beautiful himself, and he must be loving. And isn't this staggering? Just looking at these things, you guess that God is like that. And the good news for us, which we're going to see in the next few months, is that when you open the Bible, that's exactly what the Bible says about him. Lovely. But having said all this, I think for me, the most convincing proof that there ever was in my own life was that man needs God so much. In every man, there is a God-shaped void, as someone once put it. And do you know, the more I've looked at people, the more I have found it to be the case. I just wish, when I was an atheist, I'd read more of the writings of atheists. You see, the writings I read of atheists were all written when they were in the prime of life. And you know, when you're in the prime of life, you don't really think you're mortal. You don't think you're ever going to die. And they were riding high in the crest of the wave. They had a crusade to get atheism into the whole world. They were energized. If only I had read on and read their writings that they wrote at the end of their lives, I would have suddenly seen how bankrupt atheism is. It was when I realized that atheism wasn't working for me that I gave Christianity just a little chance. Well, to save you searching around, I've actually written down some quotations from the deathbeds of various well-known atheists. Can I just read some of them to you? I've taken little snippets from some. Voltaire, after a, a very successful life in his own terms, right? As he was approaching his death, he just made the statement, I wish I'd never been born, is what he says. The end result of his atheism. H.G. Wells, a well-known atheist, says this, there is no way out, or around, or through. It is the end. Totally finished. No hope left. Robert Ingersoll, here is what he, looking back on his life, thought life was. Life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer is the echo of our own wailing cry. And he looked back over his own life, and he suddenly saw it added up to nothing. But perhaps the most telling quotation I found is that of Mark Twain. 
Very amusing writer is Mark Twain. Very happy man in his earlier years. On his deathbed, this is what he wrote. A myriad of men are born. This is his summing up of human existence. A myriad of men are born. They labour, sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scrabble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. When they're young, you can be proud and vain, but when you're old, it suddenly starts vanishing. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned into aching grief. The burden of pain and care and misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for relief is in their place. It comes at last, death, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing in the end. They were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they have, been, have left no sign that they ever existed, a world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Then another myriad takes their place and copies all they did and goes along the same profitless road and vanishes as they vanished to make room for another and another, millions of myriads to follow the same arid path through the same desert and accomplish what the first myriad and all the other myriads which came after it accomplished. Nothing. What a staggering thing. And at the end of a life of atheism, that is his conclusion of what life adds up to. It reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it, you? Which is what Solomon felt at the end of his life. Let me end tonight's session by reading the opposite. Quotation from a Christian on his deathbed. My faith has never been stronger. My hope has never been brighter. My head has never been clearer. My heart has never been calmer. My life has never been purer. I love all and hate none. My love for some lifts my soul to the realm of the sublime. I'm willing to die today. I'm willing to live for a thousand years to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. My friends are dear to me. Association with them is sweeter to me. My sympathy with suffering souls is stronger. My love for all the pure, the true, the beautiful, the good and the sublime, from the bud, the blossom and the babe, up to him from whom all blessings flow, is truer, tenderer, sweeter than ever before. I sleep soundly, dream sweetly, and rejoice forevermore. What a wonderful thing. Praise God. My conclusion of all this is, oh sure, God really does exist. And therefore, from this springboard, we have to go on next time to say, as God exists, who is he? And then we'll be looking at his characteristics. Can we just pray together? Father, I do so thank you that it's true you exist. And Father, we thank you that you make sense of all that happens in our lives, that all the things that happen to us are not just mere accidents, chance events, but they all make sense when we see that you are the one with whom we have to do. Father, I just thank you for the day when I gave up the barren desert of atheism and found that there was a desert blooming as the rose, hallelujah, even the life that you would give me in Christ. 
Father, I would ask in Jesus' name, Father, for any in this room tonight who may be here without Christ and without hope. Father, I ask, Lord, that even through my stumbling words tonight that you will have spoken to their hearts. And that, Father, instead of making this an intellectual thing, Father, I pray that the knowledge that they have within them may be given credence at long last. And that, Father, they might say there is a God who reigns in his heaven. And if he reigns, all is well on this earth. Father, I do ask, Lord, that your spirit, even as I've been speaking, has been convicting people in this place, that they should come to know Jesus in a real way. Father, I do ask that even tonight, Lord, perhaps as they go home and think quietly about these things, that you will come with the message of salvation, and that, Father, they may receive Christ as their Saviour. Thank you for sending Jesus, whom to know is life itself. Hallelujah. Father, I do pray, Father, that we as a fellowship might really see that to preach the gospel is one of the burdens that is upon your own heart, that you cry out, give me children, give me sons and daughters, and that, Father, may we be obedient even to that cry. Forgive us for our self-orientation and our materialism, Thank you for blessing us in every way through Christ. But, Father, may we see him foremost above everything. Just bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And with every eye closed in this place, I just want to say that if there are any in this place, and you know tonight that you've come here and you don't know Christ as your personal saviour, can I say the room is teeming with people who would love, love, love to share the gospel with you. And could I ask you, even now, as every eye's closed, I'll be the only one who knows, but I'll make sure that someone comes up afterwards to speak to you. If tonight you've come and you don't believe in God and you haven't believed, but tonight you really now do want to know God and want to know the Saviour, could I just ask you to raise your hand in this meeting, even tonight? And I'll sit and then put your hand straight down and I'll make sure someone comes and speaks to you. There may be all Christians in this place tonight but I just feel I've got to give the opportunity for someone to respond. In Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Make sure that I've seen your hand. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for tonight. Praise your wonderful name. And thank you for the opportunity of sharing these deep things. And I would ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, that, Father, your Holy Spirit will still be speaking to us as we go on our way. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord.